Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I'm Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. This evening, our episode is entitled The Effects of Saharan Dust on Respiratory Disease. And our guests are none other than Dr. Don Williams, Dr. Edmund Blades, and Dr. John Shallery. Dr. Don Aline, sorry, is a graduate of the University of the West Indies from the class of 1994. Dr. Aline completed her postgraduate training in internal medicine at the New York Beth Israel Medical Center, followed by fellowship training in pulmonary and critical care at Albert Einstein Medical Center, New York. She is American Board of Internal Medicine certified in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical medicine, and has been employed at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital as a consultant pulmonologist and intensivist since 2005. She has been the recipient of several awards, including Resident of the Year, Most Outstanding House Staff, and Most Outstanding Fellow. Dr. Aline has participated in and co-authored longitudinal studies documenting the decline of lung function of World Trade Center first responders. Her other areas of interest include bench research in sickle cell disease lung pathologies. At present, Dr. Aline is the head of the pulmonary service at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and she is also one of the critical care specialists at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and Bayview. And up next, we have Dr. Edmund Blades. He is currently a consultant microbiologist at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. In 2014, Dr. Blades graduated from the University of West Indies Cahill campus with a PhD in microbiology. His research topic, an aerobiological survey of Barbados, which examined the microbiology of African dust compared to locally generated bacteria, pollen, and fungal spores, and their relationship to asthma in Barbados. The important finding was that African dust does not generally impact local asthma, but the pollen and fungal spores do. For his service to public health as a microbiologist, and in particular his contribution to research into the Sahara dust, which began in 1995, he was awarded the Barbados Service Star during the 2019 Independence Day Honors List. Dr. Blades is a member of the Pan American Association of Aerobiologists, is a certified mole inspector and spore analyst, and has current interest in indoor environmental air quality antibiotic stewardship and resistance, biosafety, and biosecurity. He continues to enjoy working with linkages to public health issues and the One Health Agenda. Welcome and good evening, Dr. Blades. And last but not least, we have Dr. John Shallery. In the year after Dr. Shallery entered his Bachelor's of Science program at the University of the West Indies, he began work as a professional meteorologist over the next 15 years, he went on to earn a diploma in tropical meteorology from Miami, an advanced diploma in computer science, an MPhil and PhD from the U University of the West Indies. After completing his PhD and winning the award for best research thesis, he served for one year as a deputy director of the Barbadian Meteorological Services. Since 2002, Dr. Shallery has been a lecturer in the Department of Computer Science, Mathematics and Physics at the University of the West Indies Cayfield campus. One year after he joined the UE staff, he was also appointed coordinator of computer science and information technology, a position he currently fulfills alongside his regular responsibilities in teaching and research. Dr. Shallery is particularly enthralled by the dynamics of the Earth's atmosphere and its response to the natural and anthropogenic triggers. Hence, one of his primary areas of research is in climate modeling and simulation. His counterbalancing interest is in computer visualization 
of dynamic systems. His research focus, therefore, lies at the crossroads of these two activities. Good evening, Dr. John Shallery. I'm going to now ask Dr. Shallery. I'm now going to ask Dr. Shallery to call in as well as Dr. Edmund Blades to join us. But while we're listening, before we get the ball, the ball rolling, I'm just going to allow you to listen to Florence Gittins, Colonel Florence Gittins from the Barbados Defense Force, who will be sharing with us our first in a series of hurricane preparedness tips. Giving you a few emergency preparedness tips as the hurricane season approaches. The one of the most important things is water. And you need to have one gallon per person per day as a minimum stored for the hurricane season. Now you can store it in bottles or what, and you should change it every six months and keep it in a dark place or else cover it with a black glass pipe. Good evening, Dr. Aline and Dr. Blades. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I yes, know. thank you. Good evening. Good evening. We're just awaiting Dr. John Shallery um, for him to call in. But while we wait, while he joins us, uh, Dr. Blades, I know that your research uh, efforts have been strongly in Sahara dust, African dust, um, as it relates to the Caribbean. Um, before we get Dr. Dr. John Shallery to speak to us about weather on a whole, can you just uh, tell me a bit about your research background? Just very briefly. Okay. Well, thank you and good evening, everybody. Good evening. Um, my research on the African dust was peaked way back in 1995 when a colleague of mine said, you know, there's so much African dust around here and nobody is studying it. Why don't you, you know, develop your interest and look at it? And we then approached the University of Miami who operate a sampling station on the eastern end of Barbados at Ragged Point, St. Philip. And they were doing this for a number of years, almost at least 50 years now. And they were very eager and willing to allow us to use the facility to sample, take daily samples of African dust, or rather wind from the, from the air mass up there. And then we started wrong to culture this dust, look at it on the microscope, examine it to see what was in it. And we came up with some very, very interesting um, results. And this is what we shared with the world at some point in time by publishing several papers that dealt with not only the African dust transport, but the microbiology of African dust and how it relates to pediatric asthma, especially in Barbados. Great. So we are going to hear a bit about that a little later. But mm -hmm. Dr. Shari, while you are here, can you please start off by telling us, first of all, what's the difference between weather and climate? We hear this word, these two words being interchangeably used, but really, are they the same? Mm, hello, Dr. G, and good evening to, to all, all our listeners as well. Um, the two terms have indeed created a little bit of conflict over, over the years, and um, the truth of the matter is that they are, they are fairly simple to differentiate one, one from the other. And basically, when we talk about weather, we are talking about the status of the, the atmosphere and, and the effects that come about at any given moment, what you are experiencing now. So, for example, we can say right now it is cloudy or it is warm or it is windy. That is weather. That is what is being experienced right now. And so we can push it further out and say it is those conditions that you can measure minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour, maybe even up to season by season, that you can determine seasonal weather 
um, or, or daily weather or monthly weather, etc. But in a very small nutshell, it is that which you experience at any given time. And it's an instantaneous um, phenomenon in, in, in a very simple way as well, because over time it is going to be changing and there's going to be a high degree of variability in those conditions. Climate, on the other hand, moves away from that a bit by taking all those conditions which can be experienced in an instantaneous way and give you a sort of general broad description of what you know the, the those phenomena would be in any given area so when we talk about the temperature say in a location like barbados today right now which might be say 28 degrees that's an instantaneous um, description of the atmospheric conditions and that's part of the weather but when we look at the temperature over a long period of time then we get a broad picture of how warm it is in Barbados and then we can say well over a long period of time we have determined that the the climate or the weather or the temperature as a specific example for an area like Barbados is let's say 27 degrees Celsius something like this so in in, in simple terms we can differentiate weather from climate as being something which is instantaneous or something which is over a very short time as opposed to the climate, which gives you a very broad description of what the status of those atmospheric conditions are in any given area. I hope I'm not confused with this long-winded description, but it's, it, it basically is, it boils down to those two things. One is somewhat instantaneous, and the other one provides a description over a long period of time. The result of averaging extremes and all those other values which can come in at any given time and can you can then use that and say, this is the broad description. In other words, this oh, is the climate. behind the hypnosis. Okay, great. So can you please tell me exactly what is Saharan dust? Where does it come from? Mm. That, that, is, that is a very interesting topic right now. And um, many times I've been told that it's the extreme in conditions which really pique our interest, not what happens all the time. And the truth of the matter is that we do get those Saharan death, those episodes coming into the Caribbean all the time. What, what differs one or one, what differentiates one incident from another is the density of the dust or how intense it is. And over the past few, few weeks, um, we've had a very intense case of this dust coming across. So let me just go back a little bit to its origin and tell you what is going on with it so we get a better sense of it. So by the time Dr. Blades start talking about what his measurements have been, we understand where we are right now. So the Sahara Desert, which is a very big area, millions of square miles, about three and a half million square miles, um, very dry, and um, the dust in, on the desert floor, um, it's usually picked up by, you know, it could be just about anything, winds blowing across the surface of the desert, um, eddies and, and vortices forming and picking up the dust and raising it into the atmosphere. As a result, over a long period of time, what, what we have noticed is that there is a cloud of dust which basically sits over the, um, the, the Sahara Desert. And um, that cloud is usually maybe about a thousand feet up in the air, but it's always there. And every so often that cloud becomes more, more intense or more dense with dust in it. And um, this dust is pushed out from over the desert out into the eastern Atlantic Ocean by what is called, you know, the um, African Easterly Jet. I don't want to go so much into all the technical details of it, but it's basically a strong wind system which blows the dust away from um, the, the desert out towards the west, ultimately over the Atlantic and ultimately over the Caribbean area. Most times the dust never make its way entirely across the, the Atlantic. Other times it moves across the Atlantic and most of it ends up in the Amazon basin, you know, feeding the forests out there. And um, I should also mention there is a high degree of con connectivity between different parts of the world, what feeds what and how one prospers from the other. And the Amazon desert has indeed prospered from the advection of all this dust coming off from the Sahara desert coming into, into the, Atlantic, into the um, Amazon basin. 
But some of it actually makes its way to the, Car to the Caribbean because after being pushed over the Atlantic, it is picked up by the, by the trade winds and carried into, into the region. Now, the most intense periods usually coincides with um, our regional or colloquial summer, if we want to call it that. Um, that period where um, this big massive high pressure system, which is sitting over the Atlantic Ocean, kind of weakens a bit. So rather than the winds pushing the dust out over into the, the Amazon forest area, the winds are weakened, and as a result, it moves more directly from east to west and actually makes its way to us. So we get it all the time. Um, there is hardly a day that you can look out in the Caribbean and say, wow, this atmosphere is very clear. There are very few of those days. Most times there is just this little bit of dust in there, not enough to catch our attention, but it's always there. So, um, and I'm sure Dr. Blaze will talk about that a little bit later. We get different intensities from this Saharan air layer, which is built over the desert, which is pushed, the dust is pushed into over the Atlantic by the African jet stream. And it's picked up by the tropical uh, easterly trade winds, which or the northeast trade winds, which move them into the Caribbean. And we are affected when they actually get to us. Okay. Very All right. Hmm. Dr. Blades, now what is so exciting about the Sahara dust? Um, quite often we just think about it as just dust, particulate matter. But is there anything more to this dust? from a microbiological standpoint? Hmm, I like that phrase, exciting about African dust. You know, it excited me for a long time, it still does. And we always wondered what was in this dust. And we heard so many anecdotal reports that when the dust is coming, people will get sick and you must walk with your inhaler and you must avoid going outside, etc. And people in Barbados in particular and in Caribbean, had this dread of this African dust haze and what it contained and what it would do to people. And so when we began to do our research, we had to take daily samples, collections of this dust. And we had some um, factors to make sure that we got African dust. So at the ragged point, sampling station, a St. Philip Lighthouse, we made sure that we only sampled African dust. In other words, air blowing from east, and no, we made sure that we did not involve or include any land air. So anything the air or the wind direction moved from that sector over the sea, the pumps were automatically shut down by computers. So we only took air coming from over the ocean from Africa. And Barbados being the most easily point out here, we somehow got the dust first. And you know, some people were saying that we got the, the worst of it, and, but this dust is all over the Caribbean. St. Lucia, Dominica, Puerto Rico is there. And so we set up a system of, 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 of collecting this dust over filters. We had some pumps on the ground in a pump house and we had tubes running up the tower, 50 feet up in the air, above the rock surface, above the wind shear. So we only were very careful to only collect African dust. And that dust was captured on a filter, which had a very small pore. As the pump pulls the air down, the dust was trapped on the filter. We also used other techniques as well. We had a sampler called a rotor rod. We had a sampler called a breaker sampler where we actually layered dust on glass slides and looked at it on the microscope. So we had a very good view of what the dust looked like. It looks like sand, actually, it looks like sand grains. What it contained, we saw in it some small fungal spores. We saw, um, I think we saw over the years, only one pollen grain. Because the point is that the African dust, as it comes off the coast of Africa, is large particles, and the heavy ones follow in the sea on the way here and we actually get the very fine particles very small particles done in microns 10 microns and more and this is what we were breathing in and i have a phrase on my computer which says hold your breath breathing is is dangerous to your health because we breathe this air mass this african dust all the time 
And you know, the question was, what was it doing to us? Was it making us sick? Um, many people argue that it caused an increase in asthma. And we try to find out that by doing a comparison between the African dust events, the big positive dust, and we looked at the QEH and we examined all the data from the accident and emergency department where we had pediatric children cases, children less than 18 years old. We felt that children who were less than 18 years old, their parents were very cautious and careful to have them seen when they had an, an attack. And we were very careful to, to do the analysis. We found that the asthma there was more prevalent on weekends. Uh, we, we didn't know where this was, but we assumed that there was more access to the hospital. Um, we found that, that during the school time, uh, the asthma was more in, 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 in August when school started back in September. It was more in, 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 in January when school started and more in, in May. So these broad um, figures of when the asthma occurred and when the dust occurred, we compared. And we found strange enough that I think Gordon went down to the accident emergency department when there was a big outbreak of dust. There was nobody there. Hardly anybody was present in the asthma bear hypertension. And that was a strange finding because we were really expecting to see, because of so much talk and um, talk, that we would find a really good correlation, but not to be. We found that the African dust, yes, does have a few spores. It has a lot of bacteria. And these microbes are only present when there's lots of dust. When we get when there's all, actually no dust, there's nothing, nothing in the dust. But the bacteria and the fungal spores are present when there's lots of dust. The more dust you get, more times you get more bacteria and more fungal spores. So the one thing is mm -hmm. that the dust does carry viable. When I say viable, I mean that these microbes, these spores, these bacteria spores, are able to survive the transatlantic crossing five thousand kilometers and reach Barbados in a state where they can grow. They're not dead. They are, we can culture them. We can grow them in the lab. We can see the colonies the on the plates, and they're there. And at one point, nobody believed me. That, that was so strange. It was so unbelievable that microbes could transverse the Atlantic Ocean with all the UV light and so on, and the available here. That was a big finding as well. Uh-huh. So we have these viable bacteria and fungal spores that are transported yes. across the Atlantic, and yes. we inhale them, which brings me right to Dr. Aline. Dr. Aline, mm. tell me how this Sahara dust actually affects our respiratory system. Right, so... Well, a couple of things. Um, Sahara dust affects the respiratory system in multiple ways. And often a reaction that people have is not just localized to the respiratory system, but people often will get eye, nose, and throat irritation just because you're exposed to it. But in particular, there are certain at-risk groups um, I want to highlight, and that those people are the asthmatics, people with chronic pulmonary obstructive disease, um, the chronic sinusitis sufferers, and those with seasonal allergies. Now, I want to sort of speak to what Dr. Blaze alluded to in terms of the fungus and you know, large quantities or concentrations of Sahara dust and the lack of correlation with visits to the emergency room. I looked at the Caribbean Allergy and Respiratory Association, and one of the things that has been noted is that since 1973, there's been a 17-fold increase in incidence of, of asthma in Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago. And one of the things that happens with asthmatics is that the first exposure might not be the one that causes you to have an asthma attack, because you have to be sensitized to what is in whatever you're exposed to. So for example, the Sahara dust doesn't have the typical dust mite that we would expect to cause um, issues with asthmatics, but it does contain those fungal spores, it contains aspergillus, it contains bacteria, other things that with repeated exposure may very well for the sensitized individual 
cause a problem. So maybe in year one, you might not have an issue, but subsequent exposure is likely to cause problems for people who are exposed. So the most common things that people would present with are coughing, sneezing, runny nose, um, and for those asthmatics, of course, chest tightness, shortness of breath, and um, coughing, particularly at night, um, are the major symptoms that they would look for. Okay. No. Yeah. Go, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Ali. Right. So one of the challenges, I think, is to determine for the asthmatic, and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of data out there that suggests that especially young Black men have poor perception of their, the status of their asthma. So they often will present with near death or fatal asthma because they're not in tune with the fact that the asthma state is deteriorating. So for people who are at high risk, my suggestion really would be one, to be in tune with the weather, to pay attention to what Dr. Tallery and others are advising us to do. Try as much as possible to avoid triggers. So if you've got surfaces that are becoming heavily covered, it is probably best to try to whiten them down and keep them as free as possible of the dust. But there's a lot of dust around at this point in time. And mm -hmm. the other thing would be that for those people who are preventing medications, it's important for them to adhere to the treatment regimen. Take your medications every day. So the preventer ones do not include Ventolin or Baratec. Those are the rescue inhalers. The preventer ones are the ones that contain a steroid plus something else and may include something like Singulier or Montelukast. Um, and I think adherence is especially important if you want to reduce the likelihood that you will end up at the hospital. Um, the other things um, that the patients with asthma, at least the parents should monitor for, is incessant coughing in young children. They will Absolutely. often come and say, yeah, they will often present and say to you, my child has been having a cold continuously for all of this time. And if that happens, you have to stop and think that maybe this is not a cold. This might be asthma presenting for the first time in a young child. So I would really recommend that you keep in contact with a physician or someone who can guide your asthma management. And you have to have a plan. Monitor it with a peak flow meter so you know when you're declining. It might take a while before you start getting shortness of breath. So you have to be able to know when you're in trouble and to act swiftly on that. I, I like the fact, Dr. Aline, that you commented upon inhaler use because quite often um, we found that persons would use their maintenance inhaler, not every day as they should, but would generally pick up the maintenance inhaler, which would be the inhaled steroid, as you said, um, only when they're feeling short of breath. But that's not how it really works. Um, I'm going to let you uh, explain a little bit about the inhalers in a bit. But we have a question here. Our first question for the evening is from Tonia. She says, good evening. Apart from inflammatory response, can the African dust also trigger migraines? Can wearing our masks help protect us against the effects? Right. Who wants so, to take a stab at that? <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so I think if you have migraines and you know that you have migraines and the type of headache that you get is similar or typical for your migraine, then it's more than likely that it has triggered it. But I would say that in a lot of cases, it's really going to be a sinusitis or sinus-related, sinus congestion-related headache where you get frontal, uh, the front of the face um, above the eyes. Um, that area seems to be congested. You get a severe headache associated with it. You may have some eye pain as well. Um, and that may be the, the clue that this is more sinus-related headache. Um, as far as the mask um, wearing is concerned, certainly the, wearing a mask will help you. And certainly in the COVID era, wearing a mask probably will help you very far down the road. So it, it's something that should be considered, especially if you're someone in a high-risk group. And, and will the type of mask that we are recommending for, for the public for, for protection against COVID-19, would that offer us the same level of protection against the Sahara dust? 
the mask that we are um, asking the public to wear for COVID-19 will be slightly different. So it depends on what you're what you're about to do, where you're working. I think when Dr. Blaze spoke about the times of the year that people would tend to have visits to accident emergency, I just wonder if there's a correlation between the times of the year that they're indoors whether the inside, as people would say, are outside, um, right. or whether or not it, you know, it depends on where you're working. If you're outside, most of the time, maybe you want to look at getting a mask that's got, you know, N95 res- respirators where you're filtering out 95% small particles, as opposed to the cloth masks that we're wearing, which are not really going to be as effective as far as filtering as that type of mask is concerned. Okay, great. Dr. Blades, um, you spoke about the spores and the and the bacteria. Um, is there anything else that we need to be concerned about from the Sahara dust? Um, in reading one of your papers, I saw you mentioned a bit about um, iron. Can you tell us a bit about that? Right. So the Sahara dust con- um, not only contains bacteria and spores, which is biological, there are some chemical species as well. Um, iron is one, and that gives it its reddish color. We found that when there are dust outbreaks, that as the dust um, falls to the sea, there is what we call an algal bloom, where iron is a, a, a micronutrient, so to speak, in the water. And you get lots of algae growing. And we, are, at some point in time, we've even had um, algal toys coming around Barbados, and we've had those samples of water being brought to the body, and we had to send them off, and yes, they were algal growth. So yes, there are some chemical species that come along with the dust, um, non-sea salt, nitrates, and so on, but they are primarily, you know, from the sea, sea spray coming from the ocean. Um, our prime concern with anything in the, in the dust would be what would trigger a response from biological material. So we know that in house dust, for example, where you have um, lots of animal dander, you have cockroach, uh, you have insect parts, you have dust mites, you have um, cloth fibers and so on, and that these contain pollen and spores. And by the way, even though the African dust does contain some bacteria and fungal spores, there are lots more 100,000 times more um, um, spores over Barbados than African dust. Mm-hmm. So when we compare the bacterial and the fungal content at the site at Ragged Point and compare that to a mile or kilometer inland and then at the university where they work, work there are 100 times more to 1,000 times more dust, uh, not dust, sorry, uh, bacteria spores and fungus spores in Barbadian air. So the African dust is not really, you know, have enough material much more than that's here. Mm-hmm. And it is, does not, since it does not contain much biological material, that's why we think that there is not a, a big response. Asthma and triggers are more biological protein material. So we found that grass pollen, for example, and tree pollen are much bigger triggers of asthma because of their biological material. And African dust, which is more inert. African dust mm-hmm. is primarily sand and uh, biomass burning from African inert material. It's okay. there, it's a bother, it's a nuisance. Yes, it, 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 it stops the visibility if you use it, it gets in their nose. Some people have complaints of headaches, as Dr. Ali said, um, stuffiness, sore throat. These things are not allergic responses, but they're kind of an irritant response. And we found that we can really separate the asthmatic attacks based on a biological trigger, pollen, fungal spores, um, dust mites in the house, those kind of things, plant, dander, cat, dog hairs, those things elicit a response based on the protein in the material, as opposed to African dust, which is alert. So the African dust does not really have much of a trigger when it comes to allergies, but it's really an irritant, so to speak. 
Okay, and we have a question here from Kathy, uh, and then I see a question from David. Uh, the first question is, will the dust cause an increase in eczema during this time of summer? Dr. Ali? Sorry, um, whether it would cause an increase in eczema? Yes, please. Well, I think during summer, the, the conditions are ripe for increase in eczema because it's quite hot and humid. Um, but the dust itself, based on it being around, shouldn't do that. And I, I'm sure that Dr. Blades would be the person who's really able to speak to that, especially since it's not provoking allergic type responses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I've, I've, I've heard since this last outbreak, which is so huge, somebody call it a Godzilla outbreak. It was a huge outbreak. It was probably, as Shari will tell you, uh, the worst in, in 50 years. And I've heard persons tell me, because they know I've been in the African dust, that they've had issues. And one lady said she had skin problems. So I don't know if it is directly related to African dust or if, if it was, she was primed. You know, you get priming. And then you get a response neither. Absolutely. That or not. But you know, it, people have 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 different responses and they attribute this to different things. And if it just is here, it will get blamed. Uh -huh. Dr. Shallery, I see that I have a good few questions coming in for you. Uh, David asks, this is not new to us. What makes it more critical now? And I, I think this is probably one of those questions that we should definitely pay close attention to because um, as, as you know, the David just indicated a short while ago, it is definitely not new. The only thing which changes from day to day is the intensity of it. It is something that we have been living with for, for a long time. Um, it has not killed us yet and hopefully it will not kill us in the future either. <laughs> <laughs> But whatever whatever effect that um, it is having, you know, are things that we have already gone through and we have we have survived it. So it is unlikely. I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor, so I will not venture into that field at all um, to explain how the human body is going to react to it. But I mean, we can be consoled by the fact that it absolutely is not new. And every once in a while, we get we get um, an intense episode. I mean. For most of us in our lifetimes, we have probably not seen an episode as bad as the the one which affected us a couple of weeks ago. But um, it is just part of the, the, the continuum that sometimes you get more, sometimes you get less. And even when we do get large quantities of dust, such as what we had in uh, recently, invariably that dust does not make its way to the Caribbean. It heads into the, the Amazon. And um, uh, the, the larger particulates, of course, they fall right back into the sea. Um, and we don't, we don't get to see it in our, in our area. So I would be consoled by that, by the fact that um, it's not new. It is something that the Caribbean has lived with maybe throughout its entire existence, and we have survived it. Okay. I see another question here for Dr. Shallery. The question is, would the dust cause the sea temperatures to cool? And if so, should this have an effect on storm or hurricane activity? <laughs> uh, theoretically, yes, it does have the potential to, to cool the sea surface temperature. And um, as some of, of, of our, our listeners might be aware, um, the sea surface temperature plays a very large role in the development of storms. It is from the evaporation um, of, of water from the sea surface, which produces the moisture and then the latent heat is released. And this is what drives um, the, the, the wind circulation within the storm. So um, theoretically, yes, that is very much um, a possibility. Um, the downside to that argument will be that unlike the, the Saharan air layer, which I mentioned a short while ago, which essentially just sits over the African desert, the Sahara desert, um, those dust clouds that we have, they are very transient. They just, they just move across. So the areas where they sort of shade out the sun to some, to some degree and prevents um, the insulation on the water surface to actually warm the water surface, that is going to be, that's very short term. And um, 
the overturning of the ocean invariably will still bring back warm water into the areas where some of that energy is not is not being received. So the clouds, I don't think, even the, the very intense case that we, we've recently had, is not large enough to produce a long-term effect on the behavior of storm. What, what are the major role that it plays is that um, the dust actually sucks out the water vapor, the moisture within within the air. It dries it out. Um, I don't know if, if many of you, your listeners are, are aware of this, but water vapor in the atmosphere cannot convert into raindrops to, to produce the rain that we would want to either wash out the atmosphere or, or um, bring us the water that we need. The, the water vapor actually needs something called a condensation nucleus, which the dust provides that the moisture can adhere to. And right. over time, as it moves, as the, 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 the dust particle um, with the water um, sticking onto it, as it moves up and down with the vertical currents, they, they hit against each other and sometimes they break apart, sometimes they bounce off of each other, and most of the times they stick together. And when they become large enough that um, the, the buoyancy cannot fight the force of gravity, they come down as rain. But when you have such large quantities of nuclei as, as we have in the dust cloud, um, similar to what we had recently, when we have those large quantities of dust, there is such an intense competition for the little moisture that is in the atmosphere. So everybody is just sucking out every, I mean, everybody, when I say everybody, I'm referring to every dust particle now. Right. It's now fighting with each other to grab hold of every um, drop of water vapor. And as okay. a result, the air just dries out, dries out completely. Now, uh, maybe Dr. Allen and, and, and Dr. Blaze can comment about this, but it would, it would seem that with the passage of the, the, the dust cloud, the Saharan dust, although may not directly and instantly affect um, persons who may have other pulmonary issues, but maybe the drying out of the air might, might play a significant role as well. So maybe they can, they can um, say something about this because that is exactly what happens. Whenever you have such large quantities of dust particles, the atmosphere dries out. There is just, there is just no moisture to maintain the, the humidity that many of us have become accustomed to and become comfortable with. Yeah, so. Dr. Dr. Oh, sure, okay, Dr. Blades, jump in first and then Dr. Aline. Yes, I've heard of this drain effect. You know, when the dust originates in Africa, uh, there's something called the Hamatan. No, I'm sure we can comment on that as well. But there is this intense drain out and dust and people living there they usually get outbreaks of meningitis because the roughness and the dryness of the throat becomes irritated and raw. And because you are living in very close proximity, anyone who has, who has the meningitis bacteria is, is spread. And I'm told that this is a rich environment. The dry dust, the air, the irritant throat, the rawness of breathing this hot air makes a fresh ground for spreading of, of respiratory disease, and, and that's a consideration. So it goes back to here in Barbados. You don't have that here, but the dry air makes it hot, and you are very uncomfortable. Our throats are dry, and you complain a lot. So yes, there's this link between the dryness and and, and disease possibilities and that we may find in Africa as we get to Barbados. Dr. Ali. Yes. So, so certainly breathing in dry air um, causes fluid to evaporate quickly from the airways and that ends up causing irritation and can precipitate an asthma attack. So by your inhaling this dry air, your the patients who are not who have asthma and who are not taking the medications that are used to prevent asthma attacks are more likely to end up with an asthma attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have another question here from Ian C. He says, Dr. Blades, do you normally find dust mites in the outdoor in Barbados or the Eastern Caribbean? And where do you normally find high concentrations? Also, what conditions are favorable to the reproduction of dust mites? So dust mites like humid areas. They live in the house, um, the bed sheets, the linen. Um, 
they like to feed on stuff. So they feed on on fungal spores. They feed on on dead epithelial skin cells. So any dirty environment in the house where there's lots of dust, you will find dust mites gathering. Then I've seen them a lot, a lot. When you're doing spore counts and doing tape lists, you get dust mites feeding on these on these spores. So fungus infestations is 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 a good area to find dust mites. Any um, moist dry air, moist areas with high humidity uh, in the cellar, in the basement, in the bedroom. If you spend a lot, there's a skin, there's food there. You find dust mites there. Yeah, so dust mites are around, but they're not found in African dust. This is house dust. We find dust mites, you find cockroach dander, you find animal dander, you find basically skin. So dust mites as, as, a, as an entity is not found in African dust, but it's found in house dust. That's it called house dust mites. Okay. Sharon has a question for us. Uh, she says, hi, good evening, Nurse Henry from GNF. How effective is the cloth mask use? And I'm assuming she's speaking about with respect to Sahara dust. Um, Dr. Aline, you would have told us uh, a bit earlier that really interestingly, some person is, is going to be out and in the dust in any type of dust, really, that they may want to consider probably an N95 for such. Is that correct? Right. So the type of N95 mask that you can get from your local hardware store will be the type that's recommended, not the ones that we wear in the hospital um, when we are dealing with patients with uh, tuberculosis or other highly infectious respiratory borne pathogens. So as you know, they, they sell them in the hardware and safety supply stores, and generally they have some sort of filter those would filter out about 95% of these small particles. Uh, the, the cloth mask that we wear, certainly if you look at it um, in the context of COVID, some of the uh, features of the mask really do not lend itself to as much protection, for example, as a surgical mask, which you would wear, which is less effective at preventing um, or filtering out particles compared to N95 masks. So really the N95 is the best one if you're going to be exposed to heavy concentrations. The other masks that are available generally will provide less protection, but will provide more protection than no mask at all. Absolutely. David735, I just saw that you were trying to call in. I just want to take this question from you. Dr. Blades, you were saying something just now? Well, David called back. Quick comment on, on the cloth mask. Uh, the African dust particles are very, very fine. You measure them in microns. And the dust that gets to Barbados is uh, um, half at least is less than 2.5 microns. That's a very, very small. Now, the cloth mask that we advocate for COVID 19 is really to stop large particles that you breathe out or cough out from going to somebody else. And the best material that is recommended is cotton that is very, have a very high thread count, that's very tight so that that can with, with hold in rather most of your large particles, your cough and sneeze. Um, but, um, you know, to get a, a, a mask that's not N95 to work for African dust or any small dust will have to be a a tight fitting seal. So N95 masks are, are fit tested, they're sealed around your nose, and they don't allow air to escape around the side. So mm -hmm. if any mask is not fitted like that and not sealed, dust or air will escape in and out, and they're not really good to filter fine particles. They will help, yes. If you're outside in the atmosphere and the air, you want to use anything that will physically uh, reduce um, particles, yes, they will help, help, but they're not really effective as a filter to filter and then if it of particles because they're not designed that way. Okay. Uh, David, you want to call back in for us? Good evening, David, good evening, and you're on the air. Well, good evening. Good First evening. of all, um, let me say this is, I, I like the idea of, of 
having discussed this issue. I'm calling from New York, of course, but um, okay. Um, okay. many years ago, I heard my uncles telling a story. Hello, David. This um, Saharan David bottles many years and I think it might be still there if I if I if I'm not mistaken the last time last time I heard a story it was some of it was still there so like I said it, it, it is not a new phenomenon to to us in the Caribbean but um and I that's why my question prior to was why is it so critical now if it, if, if there was um some degree of um like other other intensities that was added to it or might be part of the environment that might make it um more of a concern out so just just something that i that, that i was wondering about dr shattering you want to take that question and then probably well, dr can, yes then. i can i can certainly contribute to part of that um one of the one of the the, the very big um issues that that we have right now is um the question of of the changing climate that we're into um, things around us have been changing. Um, we've been seeing, you know, big deviations from what, you know, we are used to. And every time we see one of those things, you know, all, all alarm bells start going off in our heads. And um, a lot of that were somewhat in, in some way indicated by the result of actually modeling the climate and seeing how different input into the climate would produce different results, different consequences. And so the issue of climate change is very much, very much in the air. And whenever we see something like this, it either points to um, one of those, you know, phenomena which would indicate that things are changing. As I mentioned at the, at the start of the program, the, the Saharan air layer where, or the Saharan dust cloud air layer is always sitting there. It's always there. The African easterly jet is always pushing that dust in over the Atlantic and into the Caribbean and, in, and into the Amazon basin. That, that has always been happening. But then we see a big incident like, like what, we are, what we experienced recently. And it starts pointing to all the, all the features within the atmosphere system, which may be responsible for producing some of those effects. Um, and naturally, we are, we are always prone to, to start jumping, you know, to those kind of conclusions. Um, I would be less hasty to believe that we are entering into a, into a, a new dispensation. I mean, there are a number of changes which have already started taking place, which we cannot deny that those changes have been the result of a change in the climate. Um, but some of, those, some of those other elements in there are contributing towards the the increased lift of, of dust from off the Sahara floor into the Sahara um, layer. And maybe some indication that some of the winds which, which have served as transport for, um, for the dust moving across may be getting, or there's a suggestion that some of it may be getting a little bit stronger over the Eastern Atlantic and dying out completely over the, the Central Atlantic, um, allowing therefore for, for storms maybe to form a little bit more in the Central Atlantic as opposed to the Eastern Atlantic. So a number of factors are coming into play. And every time we see one of those signals, um, our, our immediate reaction is, is this part of the system playing out? So here we have a big incident of dust and the question is, is this going to be the new normal? The intense hurricanes that we have had in recent times, is this going to be the new normal? Because the atmospheric physics are suggesting that if you put more energy into the atmosphere through our, our anthropogenic activities, then it will translate into more energetic systems um, coming out as a, as, as a result of that. So I think in, in simple terms, this is reason enough to, to pay closer attention. Should we panic over it? Absolutely not. Um, I think we'll see big episodes and we'll see small episodes and we'll live through all of them. They have not killed us, as I said, and in all likelihood, they will not kill us. But we should definitely pay attention to the fact that we are in an environment where the world climate is changing all around us. Very true. Dr. Aline, there's some... There, uh, 
Tanya Sargent has asked a question, Dr. Sargent. Is there any evidence that our lung exposure to Saharan dust can explain the high prevalence of asthma in Barbados? So, um, hi, hi, Dr. Sargent. Um, I think the challenge is that the prevalence of asthma or asthma pathogenesis has a lot of possible and, and proven theories. So genetics plays a large part. If you've got a high incidence of cockroaches uh, or density of cockroaches, that too will predispose people, dust mites. But certainly if looking at the, what the Caribbean Allergy Association has published, they've suggested that since the 1970s, since 1973, that we've had a 17-fold increase in incidence of asthma in Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago. So yes, Sahara dust has been wrong a long time, is it plausible that it may very well be contributing based on the background of sensitization over a long period of time? I would say that it's possible that that is one of the things that explains our high incidence and prevalence of, of, of asthma. Uh, but of course, industrialization, the amount of pollution, there are lots of other factors, whether you've got more people delivered by C-section, whether or not they're being breastfed or not, all of these things end up um, uh, being put into the mix. So I think at this point in time, it is suggestive, but I can't say definitively that the Sahara dust is the major player explaining the high prevalence of asthma in Barbados. Right. Dr. Ali. Oh, sure, sure, right. sure. Yeah, Quickly, ahead, before please. we start to tie up, we have four more minutes, but yes, please do. Oh, um, yes, I, I use that same um, point there about dust increased in the early 1970s when we had um, El Nino and, and those things and perhaps John may talk about that next time the weather patterns in El Nino but I did a comparison of the asthmatic attendances over 10 years I mean I we did it for a like you know I didn't say that sometimes you don't get a you don't get a immediate reaction myself in Barbados and another group in Trinidad did the same thing when we look at the a 10 day or 7 day lag in asthmatic attendances after African dust came. And we found that there was a there was a negative association. You get the least asthma two days after you had a dust event. And that was kind of surprising. And there was this this inverse relationship between African dust and pediatric asthma admissions. And we really wondered what that was really saying. Um, and we conclude that there was nothing in the dust itself to cause it, but we, you know, we can never say never to anything. It was, a, it was a, a comparison. It was a study, and we did not find any real link between African dust and asthma. As a matter of fact, we found an inverse relationship: more dust, less asthma. Doctor Blades, um, I, I, what I would say is that you are saying that more dust, less asthma exacerbations, and attendances to A and E, but not yes, less yes. prevalence. Because we definitely have data yeah, in the respiratory unit where we have more people yes. who are actually Coming being in. diagnosed by spirometric yes. measures yes, 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 with yes, asthma. Yes. And I think there are a lot more mm -hmm. people in Barbados with asthma than we have actually been able to prove because we don't have enough people coming in for objective testing. The challenge, okay. and I think what Dr. Sargent is, is quite asking is, is it that we are being sensitized over a long period of time and eventually people get asthma as opposed mm -hmm. to it impacting on your presentation to a &E? So I, I think that it's mm -hmm. those two things that maybe... Um, we are looking at because there are lots of avenues. People get treated at home. People get treated at the emer private emergency um, um, clinics. Yes. And there are lots of people who have nebulizers at home now. And they didn't have them in the 70s. So Absolutely. with COVID, lots of people rushed out and bought all these nebulizers. People have never wheezed in their life, yeah. but they're right. so afraid yes. that they bought them. So one of the challenges that we have is that people often present late. Um, and only if you can't help it, people will mm. turn up at the hospital. So I just, I am just wondering if there's a little bit of bias on how we select and out the patients for analysis, because we also have mm -hmm. the polyclinics who can nebulize and private doctors who do it. So I am not sure, but I know definitely we have more in terms of proportionate uh, numbers of asthmatics in Barbados now compared to historical cohort. Um, and, and, and that's just the only thing I would say on that part. So I, I think maybe you're okay. correct. It's not primary allergen in that it precipitates the attack, the acute attack, but whether or not over long periods of time, 
your no-getter sensitized and your T-cells and beta, beta cells are working to cause you to become mm -hmm. asthmatic. Dr. Aline, I like the fact that you did mention, however, a, a, a serious take-home point of ensuring that you understand your asthma, you understand the respiratory disease um, in terms of whether you're going to follow up with your doctor, you're going to have your peak flow machine at home, you know, so that you can actually be aware of when your condition is worsening. Um, and you also spoke very, very briefly about the inhalers, but in our very last minute, could you just go through very, very, very quickly the difference between the two inhalers and why it's really so important to take your steroid inhaler every day, okay. which I think is a huge problem that we have here. Okay, quickly, 30 seconds. The blue inhalers are rescue okay. ones. Those, if you use them too quickly or if it lasts less than six weeks, it, it is a, a direct link to increased chance of death from asthma, one. Two, the asthma is an obstructive disease, but it's also inflammation at the background. So if you don't use your asthma inhaler, which is a maintenance one, in other words, the one with a steroid plus or minus another medication, what that means is that you're using your blue vent um, inhaler to yeah. open up the airways, but you're not combating inflammation. You must combat inflammation to be able to prevent the bad effects of asthma, which include death, but also include changes in the airway that become permanent um, over time. Good, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali. Thank you, Dr. Edmund Blades, and thank you, Dr. John Shalry. Uh, I want to just not just say thank you to you three. I mean, we had a really, really good discussion. I believe that our listeners completely enjoyed the evening. Um, I recognize that we had a good few new listeners with us this evening, and I want to say welcome to you. Um, and once again, I encourage you to, to follow us um, on Podbean and Anchor. If any of you have friends who may have missed the actual live segment, it will be reposted on the Podbean and Anchor website by tomorrow. And join us next week again on Thursday Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. Thank you so much, everyone. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.